Hey. My name is Dr. Brendan McCarthy. Thank you so much for tuning into my podcast. I am the Chief Medical Officer at Protea Medical Center in Chandler, Arizona. Today is going to be part two of a two-part episode, and we're talking about the impact of something called catecholamines on depression. You know catecholamines as going to be uh, uh, adrenaline. So if you've not seen part one, stop. Please see part one first. It is important because it helps set up what I'm going to talk about in today's podcast. So without further delay, here's part two. So that con- so there's class of medications of antidepressants that do address norepinephrine directly. We already know in medicine that norepinephrine is a player in depression. I mean, it's in that whole category of, of antidepressants that they're regulating norepinephrine. Why aren't we treating norepinephrine the cause? Why aren't we going after the cause? Now, we talked about serotonin as being a cause, how to treat that with MTHFR. It's methylation. That plays a role with generating the monoamines, serotonin being one of them. We talked about how low, low progesterone and normal estrogen or even high estrogen has a negative impact on serotonin production. So we talked about that. What about norepinephrine and stress? How do we assess for this? How do we, how do we test this? How do we verify this? One is you need to sit down with your patient and really take a good history. And you need to really understand them. You need to understand that a lot of times people don't believe that they're under stress. So you have to ask them about their actual life and what they're actually doing. And I can't tell you how many people I sit in a room with and they're working 60, 70 hours a week. And it's not just their job. I'm talking like raising kids or, you know, wherever they're doing, they're, and, and not everyone admits their stress levels. So you got to get the good history. You got to sit down with them. You got to care. Can't do it in 15 minutes or 20 minutes. A lot of times doctors will be in the room for 10 to 15 minutes because that's what insurance tells them they can do. This, um, I firmly believe that when I enter the room, I'm there for you. I work for you. I don't work for your insurance company. I don't work for anybody. I work for you. So my job is to get that history and that understanding because that's why you're here to see me. It's not you pay me or anything. This is the agreement that I made when I went into the room to be your doctor. When I walk in that room as your physician, what is my goal? What, what am I there for? You know, let's think about that for a minute. Your doctor enters the room. What are they there for? They're there for you. They're there to bend all of that brain that they built up over the years on you. There's no arguing that. That's a fact. That's what it's supposed to be. And every time it falls short, that's not on you. That's not on you. Sometimes we think it is. Sometimes we blame ourselves. There's a lot of weird self-talk we do on this stuff. And as I've said in numerous podcasts in the past, do your best. Do your best. And then... If the doctor's not going to meet you there, you know, maybe it's time to try and find another one. It's not always too easy to find another one. Sometimes you can't. Do your best. Um, When we look at stress, and I'm trying to understand stress as a cofactor with depression and norepinephrine depletion, norepinephrine testing is just not easy. I want you to know that. The, The lab tests for it are more associated with like tumors that secrete adrenaline, which is a totally different creature. Um, so labbing is not easy. There are some companies that do urinary first, you know, void measuring or second void of the day, whatever, of measuring of norepinephrine, and and some will do like saliva testing. I have to be honest with you; these 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 are still not, in my opinion, 
really well documented in the literature to be good ways of measuring norepinephrine. I just don't see it yet. And that may change in time, but right now I don't feel that it is. I'm using a lot of times with my patients just cortisol. I'm using cortisol as my guide point. Patient presents to clinic and they are depressed and I got the history and it sounds like they have a lot of stress going on in their lives. I'm going to run their morning cortisol. Now an AM cortisol, when you wake up, cortisol should be around 17, 16, 17, even 18. Beautiful. It's a high level when you wake up because that's what wakes you up. Cortisol is not evil. It has a bad reputation. It's not evil. It's good. It's just when it's too high or too low that it's bad. It's Goldilocks. Got to be in the right spot. 17, 18, even 16, you start in the morning, plenty of energy, great, going good. Anti-inflammatory, your joints feel good, you feel good. As the day progresses, before bed, should be around eight. That's the rhythm. That's what helps you go to sleep. That's a good rhythm. If you're waking up in the morning, you're presented to clinic and, you know, you're 19 or 20 or 25 for that cortisol, you're in an acute state of stress. You're almost in a manic state. You're not going to be depressed, but you're like wired. and You're stressed out. That's a cortisol that's elevated in the morning. Cortisol is lower. Say it's anywhere from like 15 to 11. There's a lot of adrenal fatigue happening in the background. You, you get a history on that person. They're going to be run down. They're going to be a little tired. You know, that's the person who's drinking a lot of coffee or Red Bull. The lower the number goes in the morning when they wake up, from, from that 17, 18, even 16, the lower the number goes, chances are they're doing more stimulants throughout the day to get them through the day. So there's those people who are doing like, you know, more coffee, they're doing, you know, Red Bull or whatever drink, energy drink they're doing. But they're, they're putting those things down to compensate because what does caffeine do? It mimics adrenaline. Ta-da, there you go. That's what's waking you up and get you going. You're not making the adrenaline yourself, so just give yourself the caffeine for that. It's just not as good. It's not good for you. When you're below 10 is when I start really being concerned about adrenal fatigue in the morning. Remember, you should be around 8, in my opinion, when you go to bed. That's where your cortisol should be to help you go to sleep. If you're waking up around 8, there's something wrong. You're going to be fatigued, low energy, more inflammation in your joints. You're not good. You're, run, you're running a low, everything's a little bit on the low end. And anything below that is it's getting more significant. When you're stressed, you release adrenaline. The adrenaline also causes that release of cortisol. So that's why I'm using cortisol as a more accurate way of measuring this. That's why I'm using that. It's not perfect, but it's our good tool to use to help understand the case in front of you. As patients have lower levels of cortisol, you see our higher incidence of depression. That's a fact as well. With that said, again, not easy to test norepinephrine there's some labs out there i'm on the fence still with some of the urinary ones slide ones i've not seen have much success but i'm on i'm on the fence because i haven't seen enough in the literature there's some studies out there but then it's just not enough yet for me to count on it to to do a diagnosis of my patients but i do feel very comfortable with doing my morning cortisol panels and there are other ways of testing cortisol as well, but I'm just going to be very precise because I know some doctors watch this. They're like, Brendan, why aren't you doing cortisol times four? Or why aren't you? I know, I know, I do. I use those. When the time is right, I will use those labs. Um, how do I treat it then? How do I treat it when they come in the door and there's adrenal fatigue from chronic stress that's causing them to have low epinephrine, norepinephrine? How do I treat them? I want you to know any monkey can write an SSRI when you walk in the door. Any monkey could say, here's your questionnaire. You do your questionnaire. Questionnaire, so, oh, my question, your questionnaire says you're depressed. You're depressed? I'm going to write you for the SSRI of the day or SNRI, whatever they're going to give you. That's not practicing medicine. That's 
I don't even know what that is. I don't know what that is. Um, if that stabilizes you, we're good. But that's not, not the degree that we're talking about right here, what I believe needs to be done. In these cases, what I believe is a good way to treat. Um, you want to get to the bottom. What I'm going to bring up here is a little weird. <laughs> this is new. And I'm just going to put it out of there. And it might change. I've been using heart rate variability a lot in my practice. And, and heart rate variability is between heartbeats, there should be a certain amount of time between heartbeats. That should be regular, you know, or slightly irregular. So when the heartbeat is going and it's beating, when your heart rate, when you're under stress, when you have more epinephrine, norepinephrine being fired at high rates, that changes the heart rate variability. It shows your body is under stress. When I have a patient where they're wearable, their fitness tracker, then that could be, you know, the Apple Watch, I think, does it to some degree. There's an aura ring people have been wearing. That's really popular in my office right now. Um, there's a lot of other ways of doing it. There's even apps on your phone that'll do it. But it's, I personally think wearing one is better. Using a wearable like that, monitoring the heart rate variability is a good way for me to see is the person getting recovery time. If they wear that wearable, that fitness tracker, and I check it, and I see that they're constantly in a state of stress based upon heart rate variability, I know I need to get in there and fix this. Now, some of it, we can counsel them certain lifestyle changes, schedule changes. There's a lot of things I could do just by just talking to them and making little changes there and then reinvestigating it. That is what I prefer to do. Sometimes, you know, we can't do that. Sometimes we need to use prescribing. You know, there are other factors at play here. When they come in and that, HRV is off and they're constantly stressed and, and they're going, that's the way I can sit down and explain to them. You may not think you're stressed, but look at this measurement. You are stressed. You're not getting enough sleep. You're, every day, all day, there's no restful moments. All day long, your heart rate variability is showing me that you're under chronic stress. That's a good educational point. Now, based upon their history and their lab work, I can get a treatment protocol that's going to be better for them. If they have complex PTSD, I refer them to EMDR therapy, which is one of the best therapies I've ever done. And I always advocate for it. And I'm a huge believer in that. And I'll do more on the future of that one. I love that therapy. Okay. So, so I'll refer that for PTSD, for complex PTSD, or even just regular PTSD. Um, if there's a hormonal component, I'll treat the hormone imbalance. And a lot of times, like progesterone with a woman, you'll see that heart rate variability normalize because I got the progesterone back in place. That works so well. Some people, I need to give them pregnenolone. Pregnenolone is a neurosteroid that your adrenals make, and it plays a big role with that GABA receptor, the anxiety receptor of the brain. That also helps a lot. It's over-the-counter in the States. Um, I'm not sure where it is everywhere else. And you do like 30 to 50 milligrams at night is often all I really needed to get the HRV, the heart rate variability, back to a better place. Um, I counsel them to have relationships, better relationships with work, changing their schedule around the best that they can. Some people just will say, no, I just can't, and they'll just keep pushing, and they'll just ignore it. Some patients are like, I, I'm a single mom, Brendan. What am I going to do? And I know that we're going to have to push it through this, and they're going to have to have this for a long time. And so I'm going to do everything I can to make sure they stay healthy during these years of stress as a single mom. So I'll prescribe correctly the hormones that need to be in place. I'll do my best to counsel them on how to take better care of themselves with rest. But I do my best to help them in those moments. Not all of them are going to get better right away. Not all of them can change their jobs. Not all of them can stop being a single mom. 
I know that, but I'm going to treat it where the problem lies the best that I can. And once the patient understands what's happening, they feel heard and they feel seen. It's easier to get through those patches of hard times in your life when you know what's causing it, how it's there, and how I'm monitoring it with you and we're doing our best to manage it. And you see a light at the end of the tunnel. Those kids will graduate one day. <laughs> They'll graduate one day. You'll be good someday. <laughs> it's not always forever, you know? Um, one of the things we do uh, that's an off-label that there's been increased research on that I want to bring up just casually and not be too extreme with it is uh, modafinil. Modafinil is a, a wakefulness agent, a prescribed agent uh, on, in the States, and that plays a big role with regulating epinephrine and norepinephrine. I like that as an off-label use for depression because it's, it directly treats the norepinephrine. It's non-addictive and it has uh, no impact on cardiovascular health. And that's a prescribed agent. And we prescribe that when we deal with that as, a, as an off-label. That's something to consider in those cases. That's a worthwhile thing putting in there. But it's not always necessary. I just want to bring up other options other than SSRIs. I just wanted you to know there, there are other things out there. And as a doctor, you know, our job is to really think hard and long about what we're treating and what's the best tool to use for that. So that was a lot. I hope it was helpful. I love doing this. Your feedback means a lot to me. Your comments, I do my best to read all of them. I do my best to respond to them. Please like, share, and subscribe. Um... When you do those comments, please know that I listen to them and that's what I use to help me make new material and, and to guide the direction we're going. And then, um, yeah, thank you so much and I'll see you next time. <laughs>